0: I loved the emotional rush of being scared. I still do, of course. I don't go out much to haunted houses, but I still love good, old-fashioned, scary stories.
1: Listener discretion is advised. This is a complex case that goes back to May 1985, In May 1985, the Eastburn family lived in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Gary and Catherine, who went by the name Katie, married in 1975. They first met at a softball game. Gary told the television program Unusual Suspects that he was dumbstruck when he saw her for the first time. In May 1979, the couple welcomed their first daughter, Kara. This was followed by a second daughter, Erin, in November 1981. In July, 1983, Katie gave birth to their third daughter, Erin. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems.
1: In the spring of 1985, Gary Eastburn was an Air Force Captain. He was the Traffic Control Chief at Pope Air Force Base. That spring, the family was planning on relocating to England where Gary was going to work as a liaison. In May 1985, Gary was in Montgomery, Alabama, receiving training. Katie was at home with the three girls who were 5, 3, and 22 months old. Gary called home every night on well, May 10th and 11th, he couldn't get a hold of Katie. Sunday, May 12th, 1985, was Mother's Day. That day, one of the Eastburn's neighbors noticed three newspapers on their driveway. He initially assumed that the family was away, but then he saw their car parked on their driveway. He rang the doorbell, but no one answered. He listened, and he heard a baby crying. He immediately went home and his wife called the police. An officer arrived at the house, and he cut the window screen. He climbed into the house. In the master bedroom, he found the semi-nude body of the 31-year-old Katie Eastburn. She was naked from the waist down. She had been stabbed 15 times. The body of 3-year-old Aaron was also in the bedroom. She had been stabbed multiple times. In another bedroom was the dead body of 5-year-old Kara. She had been killed by multiple stabs to the chest. In the third bedroom was 22-month-old Jana Eastburn. She was alive, but she was dehydrated. She was taken to the hospital and made a full recovery. Gary Eastburn returned home and looked around. He noticed money was missing and so was a bank card along with a copy of the PIN. It's believed that the attack began in the living room. Katie then ran into the master bedroom where she was killed and then the two girls were murdered. The killer may have not known that the third girl, Jana, was there or he may not have considered her a possible witness to the crimes or he had simply run out of rage. The police thought that Katie must have known her killer. The police noted that there were no signs of a break-in or forced entry. The most obvious suspect was Gary Eastburn. Based on the evidence, the police believe that the felon was killed either on the night of May 9th or the morning of May 10th. But Gary had near airtight alibi. He was over 500 miles away in Montgomery, Alabama. It takes over 8 hours to drive from Montgomery to Fayetteville, so it would have been impossible for him to drive all the way home and back to Montgomery without anyone noticing. His time in Montgomery was also well documented and supported by several witnesses. Also, there was no motive for Gary to kill his family. By all accounts, the family was happy, and there was no evidence that either Gary or Katie was having an extramarital affair. The investigators then became interested in the girl's babysitter. She had an unusual pen pal. He was convicted mass murderer Jeffrey McDonald. McDonald was an Army Special Forces physician. In February 1970, his pregnant wife... His 5-year-old and 2-year-old daughters were murdered during a home invasion in their home in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. They had been brutally stabbed and beaten to death. McDonald was home during the attack, and he claimed that they were attacked by three men and a woman whom he described as hippies. He said that the attack were copycats of the Manson murders, which happened about half a year earlier. McDonald was injured, but not too severely. He said he was knocked unconscious and when he came to, his family was dead and the killers were gone. McDonald was convicted of the three murders nearly nine years later. He has always proclaimed he is innocent and many people believe him. This included the Eastburns' babysitter. She called him a martyred hero. The investigators immediately noticed similarities between the murders of the McDonalds and the Eastburns. In both cases, the wife and two young daughters of military families were brutally beaten and stabbed to death in their homes. Also, the McDonald's were murdered about six miles from where the Eastburns lived. The investigators thought that perhaps the babysitter killed or arranged to have the family killed to make it look like it was the same people who killed the McDonald family. This would make it look like Jeffrey McDonald was really innocent. Another possibility is that McDonald was innocent and the people who killed his family murdered the Eastburns, but the police found no evidence that linked the babysitter to the murders. Also, while there were major similarities between the murders, the Eastburns and the McDonalds, the police didn't find any tangible evidence that connected the murderers. Hours after the bodies were found, the police got their first solid lead. A man named Patrick Cohn contacted the police. He told them he was a custodian and at 3.30 a.m. on Friday, May 10th, he was heading to work and he walked by the Eastburns' home. He saw a tall man with light hair wearing jeans, a knit cap, and a black members-only jacket. He was carrying a garbage bag down their driveway. He then got into a white Chevrolet Chevette and drove off. The police had come speak to a sketch artist and a sketch was created. As we mentioned earlier, at the time of the murders, the family was preparing to move to England. Katie was trying to rehome the family's dog, so she took out an ad in the classified section looking for someone to take the dog. From the neighbors, the police learned that on Tuesday, May 7th, two days before the murders, a man in a white chevette picked up the dog. One interesting thing that the police noted was that a woman named Angela called to inquire about the dog. The Eastburn's babysitter had talked to the woman and wrote a note with Angela's details. When the police searched the house, they could not find the note. On May 15th, the local news reported that the police were looking for the man who picked up the dog. 27-year-old Army Sergeant Timothy Hennis saw the segment and he went to the police. Initially, the police had no reason to suspect that Hennis was involved in the murders. He was employed, he had no history of substance abuse, and he was married with a small child. He did have a criminal record, but it was for writing bad checks and nothing violent. Hennis had also voluntarily came and spoke to the police. He ended up speaking with them for seven hours. He told them he had picked up the dog on Tuesday morning. He told Katie that they would keep the dog for a few days to see if it was a good fit. Katie said that was fine and would call him in a few days to check in. Hennis said that on the night of the murders, he drove his wife and 10 week old daughter to his in-laws home in Jacksonville, Florida. He returned to Fayetteville around 8pm. He said that Katie called about the dog not long after he arrived home. He then watched some TV and went to bed. The police thought that Hennis was probably the last person to speak to Katie before she was murdered. The more the police talked to Henness, the more they thought he was a solid suspect. For example, he drove a white Chevette, which was the cars seen at the Eastburn's home around the time of the murders. Hennis was also married to a woman named Angela, and the note with Angela's details was missing from the house. Also Henness didn't have a solid alibi for the time of the murders. He said he was home alone, but most importantly, It looked a lot like the sketch the man, Patrick Cohn, had described. Hennis was photographed, and the police collected samples of his blood, hair, and saliva, and they also got copies of his fingerprints and palm prints. They took Hennis' photo and placed it in a photo lineup with photos of four other men with light hair and mustaches. They asked Cohn to look at the lineup. He picked out Hennis as the man he saw that morning. Then the police talked to an ex-girlfriend of Hennes. On the night of the murders, he had dropped off his wife and daughter, then Henness had come by her home hoping to have sex with her. It turned out that Henness had dropped off his wife at her parents' home because they were having problems and she wanted a few days away from him. The police wondered, could Henness have gone to Katie's home hoping to get some physical attention from her? He may have been able to talk his way into the house since he wasn't a stranger to her which would explain why there was no signs of a break-in or forced entry. But then, when Katie turned him down, he snapped, raped her, killed her, and then murdered the children. The police decided they had enough evidence to arrest Timothy Hennis. He was taken into custody on Thursday, May 17th, a week after the murders were committed. After the arrest, the police learned that the stolen ATM card had been used twice, once on the Friday and once on the Saturday morning. Both times, the maximum of $150 was withdrawn. Once again, the police found another connection to Henness. At the time of the murders, Henness was behind on his rent, which was $300. But then, on the Monday, after both withdrawals, he paid the rent in full. The police managed to track down the woman who used the ATM three minutes after the second withdrawal was made. The woman remembered seeing a man using the ATM before her, and she described a man that looked a lot like Henness. The police continued to investigate Henness and found more connections. A specific thing that Cohn remembered about the man he saw on the Eastburns' driveway was that he was wearing a black members-only jacket. It's believed that the murders were committed either on the Thursday night or early on the Friday morning. At 10 a.m. on Friday, Hennis dropped off a black members-only jacket at the dry cleaners. The morning after that, Hennis' neighbors saw him burning stuff in a barrel. While the police had a lot of circumstantial evidence, they didn't have anything concrete like the murder weapon or Hennis' fingerprints at the crime scene. Even if they had found his fingerprints, unless they were in blood, they could have been explained away because Hennis had picked up the dog a few days before the murders.
0: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
1: Timothy Hennis went to trial in May 1986. During the trial, the district attorney showed graphic crime scene photos. The crime scene was bad enough that it upset veteran homicide detectives. So understandably, members of the jury were deeply upset when they saw the dead bodies of the mother and her two young daughters. The trial lasted five weeks. Then the jury deliberated for about two days. Timothy Hennis was found guilty of first-degree murder. On July 8th, Hennis was sentenced to death. A few days after being put on death row, Hennis received a letter. It reads, Dear Mr. Hennis, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry, you're doing the time. I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X. It was postmarked July 8th, the day he was sentenced to death. The sheriff's department received a similar letter. Neither letter had fingerprints on them. The police and the district attorney dismissed it as a ploy by Hennis to try and prove he was innocent. They were convinced that the right man was sitting on death row. Hans maintained he was innocent and his lawyer appealed his conviction. In September 1988, his appeal was argued in the Court of Appeals. The lawyer argued that the prosecution should not have shown graphic crime scene photos because they inflamed the jury. The Court of Appeals agreed with the argument and his conviction was overturned. He was granted a new trial. That trial began in March 1989. The prosecution's case was very similar to the first trial. One of the key witnesses at both trials was Patrick Cohn, who was walking to work and he said he saw Hennis near the Eastburns' home. The defense found a neighbor of the Eastburns who resembled Hennis. Many people thought that they could have been brothers. He said that on the night of the murders, he had a problem sleeping, so he went out walking that night. He was also wearing a dark members-only jacket and a woolen cap. He easily could have been the man in the sketch. The defense also argued that Cohn was an unreliable witness. Since he testified in the first trial, he had been arrested several times. But those charges were always dismissed because he had been a big help in convicting Hennis. The defense had another witness testify, and they said they saw a different man outside the Eastburn home at around 1.45am. He had long hair, and he had a light-colored van. Plus, the defense learned that in the two months leading up to the murders, Katie had been receiving disturbing phone calls. They often came in the middle of the night. The caller knew her name and said he was coming to see her. He also said sexual things to her. However, there was no evidence that Dennis knew Katie before he picked up the dog. So the stalker who was harassing her may have killed her. The defense was even able to argue against the physical evidence. Head and pubic hair were found at the crime scene. It did not belong to the Eastburns or Henness. Also, a drop of blood was found on a towel. The blood type didn't match Henness or the victims. Hennis' lawyer said that he did drop off a members-only jacket at the dry cleaners the morning after the murders. But there were no blood stains on the jacket. A dry cleaner would have noticed a jacket covered in blood. Experts examined the code and found no traces of blood on it. The dry cleaning process would have washed away all traces of blood. Another major element of the crime was the ATM card. Another major element of the case against Hennis was the ATM card. A witness said that she saw a man who looked like Hennis using an ATM around the time one of the withdrawals was made. But when one of the withdrawals was made, Hennis was working overnight at Fort Bragg. Evidence also suggested that someone else was at the Eastburn's house that night. There were footprints found outside the house. There were three sizes smaller than Henness's feet. At his first trial, five neighbors testified that they saw Hennis burning stuff in a barrel. The barrel was examined and nothing of interest was found. Timothy Henness's second trial lasted nearly six weeks, but there was a break because the judge's wife was ill. Then the jury deliberated for just over two hours. They found Timothy Henness not guilty on all charges. After serving nearly three years in death row, Hennis was released and he returned home to his wife and daughter. He also returned to the Army. He served until 2004 and had an impeccable record. He then retired and settled in Washington State with his wife, Angela. After the acquittal, The murders of Katie, Kira, and Aaron Eastburn went cold. The police had no other strong suspects. Then in 2006, the case took an unusual turn. In June 2006, the vaginal swabs taken from Katie Eastburn were tested. Male DNA was found, and they had a match. The semen left inside Katie belonged to Timothy Henness. This was a huge problem for investigators. Hennis couldn't be retried because he had already been acquitted of the crime. This would constitute double jeopardy. The investigators decided to pass the information along to the Army. In September 2006, the Army ordered Hennis back in active duty. Then November 2006, they court-martialed him for the three murders. Hennis' lawyers argued that they couldn't do that because it was double jeopardy. But the army pointed out the double jeopardy only applies to one court. For example, someone can be tried at the state level and acquitted, but then be charged at a federal level. In this case, a court martial from the army was different from the court of the state, so therefore Hennes could be charged with the murders and it wouldn't be double jeopardy. For years, Hennes's lawyers fought to have the case thrown out, but their motions were always denied. So Timothy Hennis went to trial for the three murders for the third time in March 2010, 25 years after the Eastburns were killed. The key piece of evidence of the prosecution's case was the DNA. A forensic biologist who compared the DNA said that the semen is 1.2 quadrillion times more likely to be from Hennis than another white man in North Carolina. The evidence was strong, so Hennis' lawyer tried to argue that the evidence could have been tampered with. Between 1993 and 1994, a custodian who worked at the police station stole guns from the same evidence room where the swabs were stored. So the evidence room was not very secure. Another problem was that the evidence technician who collected the evidence didn't wear gloves and this could have led to contamination. Also, there was no documentation on how the DNA was collected and who handled it in the 17 years between the murders and when it was tested. Finally, none of the other unexplained evidence found at the crime scene like the fingerprints and hair samples were a match to Henness. Scott Wisnan, who wrote a book about the case that was published in 1993, said, how does it happen that they got exactly the lab result they needed when all the physical evidence pointed elsewhere? The prosecution's explanation for why only the semen linked Hennis to the crime scene was because he would have known not to leave any blood, hair, or fingerprints of the crime scene. However, in 1985, he wouldn't have foreseen the rise of DNA testing, so therefore he didn't know that the semen could be linked back to him. As his lawyer then argued that the semen only proved that Hennis and Katie had sex and didn't implicate him in the murder. He said that Hennis and Katie could have had consensual sex and then someone killed her afterward. While this logically makes sense, the theory of a serviceman and the wife of a serviceman having sex while her husband was out at training did not play well with the jury made up of service people who had to leave their spouses home alone for long periods of time. Another problem was that Hennes, who had stayed married to the same woman through all three trials, never admitted to having an affair and always denied being at the Eastburn home that night. The court-martial lasted three weeks, and the 14-member jury deliberated for just over three hours. Timothy Hennis was found guilty for a second time, and once again, he was sentenced to death. Some people, like Scott Wisnot, still believe that Hennis is innocent. Other people, like Gary Eastburn, know that Hennis is guilty. Gary said that he has no desire to see Hennis die. Instead, he wants Henness to run jail for the rest of his life. The executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center said that Hennis is the only person in the history of the American justice system to be sentenced to death, exonerated, and then sentenced to death for the same crime. Henness's lawyers have appealed his conviction several times on several different grounds, but they have been unsuccessful. As a result, 65 year old Timothy Henness is currently sitting on death row at Fort Leavenworth Military Prison in Kansas. No execution date has been set. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe.